Hi, everyone. Welcome to episode 106 of the Lift Free and Diet Hard podcast. I'm Andrew Coates, and I was recently a guest on uh, on Derek Hansen and Don Saladino's podcast. It was a really cool experience. And Derek's someone who's been showing up in my view for a while now through friends of mine like Don and like Luca Hosevar. He's been doing seminars around at different facilities. And I thought this was the perfect opportunity to bring Derek on to A, do a deeper dive and learn more about what you do, but share that with my, my audience as well. And your work, you're one of the leading authorities in sprinting, sprint mechanics, and a little bit about your background. You have a master's of applied sciences, uh, and you're a certified strength and conditioning coach. And you've worked with, I, I directly as a coach or as a consultant with the Canadian national team, a lot of prof, uh, North American pro sports teams, uh, a lot of individual Olympic medalists, world record holders. So you've got a pretty impressive track record in your space. So thank you. Uh, welcome to the show. Yeah, thanks for having me, Andrew. It's uh, it's getting cold here in Vancouver, so I can uh, feel like I'm the part of the rest of Canada. Well, you, you're uh, you're wearing a toque for starters, yes. right? a fellow Canadian, and uh, the toque is actually a strong New York toque. So it's Kenny Santucci's, but so yes, a friend of Don's and you know. A good buddy of mine, uh, Don and I just spoke at his event in October at Strong New York. So, um, you know, small world we kind of have in a way. Yeah, yeah, no, I, it's, I was hanging out with them a couple of weeks ago in, in New York where I was teaching. And um, yeah, it's we went out to dinner with Kenny and, and Pat Davidson and a couple of other people. And um, that's, that's a friend. Yeah, we spoke. Great, great people. network to, to have. Right. So. Great people, Don, and Don especially. He's got, Don is sort of almost the center of it all, and and he's just such an incredible person. And I had him on the podcast recently, and I can't stress enough. Anybody finding this, go listen to the recent episode with Don. He's super. I think the one of the things I was most interested in diving into is, I think for a lot of personal trainers, I mean, my background is primarily kind of personal training, general population, and for our world, you know, we see little bits and pieces of sprinting and sprint mechanics. But I, I think that stuff's almost like really foreign to us in a way. We don't get a lot of exposure to it through a lot of the mainstream uh, fitness industry. And there are probably only a handful of people who really, you know, highly specialize in it and educate within the fitness industry. So I wanted to, you know, kind of ask what's important for us to understand probably the general trainer, maybe the person who's not deeper into strength and conditioning and maybe gets a lot of formal education or exposure to this stuff. What's really important for us to understand about the value of sprinting, sprint mechanics, and I guess the entry-level stuff that can bridge the gap. Because I think there's a big thing. When we get exposed to concepts that seem foreign to us, it's very easy to stay nestled in what we know instead of wander into that. Because I, I just look at the whole idea of sprint mechanics. I'm like, I don't know that stuff. So I'm hesitant to venture there. Yeah, and I... You know, I just did a, a consult with a pro team locally here, the, the CFL, the Canadian Football League team. And um, and one of the things I, I, I mentioned to them, like it was more rehab focused, but um, I think a lot of people just associate like, hey, let's get back to running with jogging, like slow jogging, like, like everybody, let's start jogging first, right? And that's very problematic with, most of the clients that I work with in terms of rehab or performance, because it's very different than actual fast running. Um, and, and it kind of detrains qualities that you want to bring out. So, uh, when people say like, Oh, I want to learn how to run. They think they can just put on some sneakers and go out for a run where 
I try to break it down technically and I say, okay, this is how a stride should land. Uh, you want to be elastic when you hit the ground, you're more efficient. Uh, this is, you know, where I want it to land in relation to your center of mass. Uh, and then when we run fast, we don't have to go that long. We could go, you know, three, four five seconds. Um, and most of the time when I speak to people, I say, when was the last time, and this is an adult population, when was the last time you ran as fast as you could ever, like sprint, right? And they're like, I don't know, grade seven, uh, you know, maybe in high school, but there's a large, you know, proportion of the population who may have never ran as fast as they could unless they were chased or, you know, you know, you know, chased by the police or somebody else or playing tag, but, you know, adults don't do it. So when I was working in a physical therapy clinic uh, for the last five years, we'd have people come in with catastrophic injuries, everything from avulsed tendons to, um, you know, uh, uh, ruptures of Achilles, patellar tendons, um, ACL injuries, because they had to run or they had to sprint, like chase their kid, uh, chase the bus. Uh, and they had these catastrophic injuries. So I, I started thinking, well, I guess people aren't prepared to do this or they don't have the skill to do it, all of the above. So that's when I, you know, I've been working with pro teams and obviously they have to sprint. You'll be, you'll be shocked at how many teams don't sprint as part of training, but you know, that's another story, but, but certainly uh, when I started working with general population. And so I would teach, you know, when Don had his gym open in, in New York city, uh, we would work with different people that would show up. Some of them, you know, I've worked with actors too, and we we're teaching them how to do proper sprint mechanics, not just for general fitness, but just for life. Like if you have to function, you're walking through the city of New York City and, you know, a car could be deflected onto the sidewalk and you've got to run out of the way, you know, those types of things. And people think, well, that doesn't happen very often, but, you know, the one time that you have to do it, you want it there. So I think that's that's how I've been trying to approach this is it's a basic life skill being able to move quickly and there has to be some preparation. There's a technical component. And, you know, once you learn how to do it um, safely, it, it can be part of your general fitness program, whether it's part of your warm up, whether it's a few sprints to finish off a training session um, but certainly it's, it's for me, it's just kind of what I always do. If somebody says, okay, we're going to bring you in. Well, guess what? There's going to be some sprinting happening. If you come to one of my courses, you might have to run fast or at least learn some of the drills that make up, uh, you know, a sprint stride. So that's, that's kind of how I've been approaching it now is, um, it's a niche area, but certainly it's an area where I think a lot of people, uh, need to have some exposure. And that's literally why I'm interested in this topic and want to bring you on. So there's a couple of things you said in there, and I, I want to see what your thoughts are on the nuance between the injury risk, because you just said there are people who are totally inactive and then all of a sudden go, they have some sort of thing where they go too hard. We know the weekend warrior just goes all out playing softball and, you know, pulling hamstrings and stuff like that. And it makes sense that any type of, loading or effort exposure we're going to graduate it over time you don't take someone in off the street and max put max load on a barbell squat and one rep max them and in a way i mean sprinting a is body weight but b it's also full all-out sprint is kind of like your your max effort so 
if we were to do that, then theoretically, we're increasing injury risk, but we also want to have people have the capacity to do that. But it's not like everybody is going to be spending time every week through their adult life. Well, just in case I have to run out of the way of a car, I've got to make sure I graduate my exposure or else I dare I not all out sprint to dodge a car. Oh, well, I might like ruptured Achilles, right? You're not even thinking about that. So how do you, are, what are the misconceptions about the injury risks and what matters there? Yeah, I, I, I would say that a lot of people think that, oh, okay, we're going to sprint, which means all out maximal, right? And I think one of the first things you can do is say, hey, we can accelerate um, and we can do it at 80% or I just want you to be relaxed, right? I usually start with the drills because it's a way to get people to do the motions of the arms and legs upright. You can do it on the spot. You can do it over distance and it's very safe. And all of these things that I teach are part of my rehab progression anyway. So I treat somebody who's rehabbing just the same as I would treat a beginner. So, okay, let's march on the spot. Let's march over distance. Let's skip, right? Let's do a running high knee drill at low amplitude and then let's build it up. And then once you've exposed them for maybe, you know, a three, four week period of the drills and some submaximal acceleration. The other thing is if you just get them to accelerate for a short distance, five or 10 yards, it's very hard to get uh, injured within a very short distance because the velocity doesn't get that high. It's when you get, you know, usually when somebody pulls their hamstring, it's about 20, 30, 40 yards into a run when they're upright. Um, but certainly five, 10 yards, a couple of steps, five steps, six steps, seven steps uh, is a good way to give them exposure to the ground reaction forces. But the velocity is still not that high. I think in world-class sprinters, uh, after about 10 yards, they get up to about 70% of their top speed. So you're below 70% of your top speed, anywhere from zero to 10. So I think that's how I would usually start somebody drills, and then maybe short accelerations over 10 yards. And then we slowly start opening that up so that velocity goes up the farther that they go. But that might be a, you know, six to eight week period, we're not doing this, you know, all of a sudden. So so, and that actually makes a lot of sense because it, even the way I asked the question almost implied the misconception that sprinting is all all or nothing, right? It's you're either not doing it or you're doing it at max effort. So th that actually rather perfectly describes it because again, we would treat it the way we would treat any other type of loading and intensity progression. And maybe that's the framework that, because I'm trying to speak for other people. I'm certainly coming from my own point of view where I try to create a framework to get my head around it a bit more. It, it's not often I come on here, but I'm, I'm actually very comfortable in saying, listen, I don't know much about this. I see little bits and pieces, but it's like, you know, those people who are brilliant at, uh, they, they understand music and they grew up playing musical instruments or the people who tinkered with cars growing up with their dads. And then they just, they understand, they see through the matrix on mechanical stuff. They, they're the kids who are pulling apart the lawnmower and, and making other sort of motorized shit out of it. Whereas for me, I don't have those technical inclinations when it comes to machinery. So someone starts talking about car stuff, and I just don't have the existing framework of knowledge to pull that in. You talk to me about other fitness stuff, the framework's there, but sprinting seems very foreign. And I'm wondering if other people listening kind of experience it the same way. But what you just did is you wove it into the matrix that we already understand. So that's actually really helpful for me, and I hope it is for other people. Yeah, I, I mean, 
again, from a, even like if I explain it from a rehabilitation point of view, I use sprinting as part of like uh, hamstring strain rehabilitation. So somebody pulls their hamstring. And so when I present to say the NFL team's medical staff, um, I'll say like, I use a sprint based approach and everybody's like, Oh, right. Because that's how they got hurt. They were sprinting and they pulled a hamstring. So it's counterintuitive, but you really have to like anything, you have to expose them to the stress in a progressive manner to get them ready to handle that stress again and, and do it more efficiently. So I think, um, that's really how I do it with everybody is okay. What can you handle? Uh, let's do that for a while. And just like weightlifting, let's build up a foundation of volume. And then once we have a certain volume, then we can start building it up in intensity wise, um, and let you run faster and farther and, and do more, um, you know, explosive runs. The other thing is a good way to start somebody is get them to sprint submaximally up an incline because the incline kind of slows things down and it puts you in a better posture. So doing hill sprints, some people will pull a sled. It doesn't have to be that heavy, but it just provides a supportive environment for putting you in the right sort of posture and mechanics. Um, and it's, you know, it's, it's, again, it's, it's very hard if you do it right to, to get hurt sprinting up a hill. Whereas when you're sprinting on the flat, things can feel like they're getting out of control and you don't want to be in that situation when you're running fast. Like I've, if you go on, you know, YouTube or watch fail videos, you'll see, I always see somebody racing. Like it'll be average people like, Hey, let's race. And then you'll see, they start to like, just lose control and half of them will like face plant. And it looks like a good video, but that's, that's a pretty painful way to introduce yourself to sprinting. So that's why I think a lot of people go, why would I want to do that? That looks pretty dangerous. So it, it's just understanding how to kind of dole out the the work. Let's come at it from another angle too and see what your thoughts are. You, you'll sometimes hear the rhetoric like, you know, don't load into dysfunction, which, or that one makes sense. Or you'll sometimes hear, you have to earn the right to load, which I, I hate that rhetoric because I think it's fundamentally flawed. The example is you know, people who say, well, your, your body weight squat has to be perfect before you give anybody any weight. And I think that's junk because I can't count the number of times I've had someone whose body weight squat looks like a baby giraffe on ice, but you put a 20, 25 pound goblet dumbbell in their hands and it, it, grounds it so well it's such a, a perfect reference point that it you almost don't have to coach or cue anything and it's almost a perfect squat for most people so we're also not maxing that person out so in the case of sprinting at what point do you have to make sure and how do you get the the, the technical movement skills before you let someone kind of go full blast with it because obviously if we just let people just run and there's like what are, what are some faulty mechanics or some issues that tend to increase injury risk? I suppose is another thing we can look at. Um, the biggest thing is, is overstriding. So like a lot of people will tend to, they think that running faster is about reaching, grabbing, pulling on the ground, and then pushing on the ground, you know, once the, your foot gets behind you. And certainly that's a, that's an intuitive strategy. Like I got to grab the ground or I have to push on the ground. But anybody who runs fast understands that you have to be more elastic on the ground and you have to rebound off the ground. And the longer you push on the ground, the more you're going to kind of fall towards the ground. You know, you push out back and then your next stride can't get around quick enough. And then you, 
will land too far in front of your center of mass and it just becomes a mess. So this idea that people um, think they can push their way out of it just like they would uh, a squat or a step up or something like that. Sprinting happens very quickly. Like at world-class levels, you're at four to five strides per second. So that's pretty fast. That's one, two, three, four, five, right? One, two, three, four, five. You're, you've done five strides in a second. Uh, you can't think about that. It has to happen quickly. And your response on the ground has to be uh, both stiff and elastic. So you're teaching people how to bounce off the ground. And if you, I, I always show uh, examples of, of animals running. So I'll show a cheetah at a thousand frames per second. And you can see how it reaches out front, but it lands underneath its, its shoulder or its hip and rebounds off the ground. And then when you show it at full speed, you can't even see what's going on. It's so fast. So pe people need to understand that um, they need to be elastic. Uh, they need to be very cyclical. They need to have high frequency um, and they have to work on that in a progressive manner. So I usually do it with the drills. If I can get people to do a running high knee drill, lifting their feet at four strides per second, and I, sometimes they'll use a metronome app and go one, two, three, four, one, two, three, four. Okay, great. Now let's move forward with that. So there's, there's qualities you can work on safely in isolated situations that prepare people for the cyclical action, the high frequency of steps, and the elastic response off the ground. And then once you've done that for, you know, two, three, four weeks where you've built it up, then you can say, okay, let's try it with some locomotion. Let's try it over distance. Um, and still you're probably cueing them to be like relaxed and at a submaximal intensity. Um, but eventually, you know, you can speed it up and they'll, they'll get it. As long as your progression is very gradual and people feel uh, secure and safe. And that's, that's what you're trying to do. And that's why I said, even going up a hill is a really good way. You go up a steeper hill. Well, that slows them down. And then as they go along, you make, you find a flatter hill and a flatter hill and they're like, oh, okay, I can do this. But there has to be a way to build their confidence and their competence over time. Just like, just like anything. And this could also double as a pretty effective warm up for other things, especially lower body exercise. Anyway, if you're doing you know, five to 10 minutes worth of drills where you're physically and mentally fresh and you can pour yourself into that. And what that, that's going to do a wonderful job of preparing the, the central nervous system for lifting weights. And it's probably going to function as a really good mobility drill, especially if you're doing high, uh, high knee skipping uh, steps. So I think there's a lot of potential here. And I guess what I'm impressed with is the ability to articulate this stuff, because we're talking about a lot of technical things that probably require you teach uh, you know seminars and 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 coursework and there's there's stuff online that we can do but you obviously have to see this stuff so listening to a description of it only goes so far but you've actually done a really wonderful job of i think bridging us to that point so that brings us to the next thing about teaching seminars uh, you know to coaches uh, and i know you have running mechanics professional which is one of the 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 outlets that you do that through and yet there are, I alluded to this earlier, there are relatively few that I'm aware of fitness professionals who are teaching, like, or coaches in the sprinting space who are teaching fitness professionals, seminars, educational vehicles, uh, these skills. Because I think a lot of the, probably a lot of your contemporaries are probably first and foremost coaches within the same space, working with the athletes, working with the teams. So why did you choose or how did you end up also educating within this space, traveling to seminars, which is different from working with 
you know, you're wearing a Kansas City Chiefs shirt, right? So there's that. And then, you know, I, I suppose we could also talk about the relationships within the industry and how you, how, how they've helped you, but how they even materialize. Again, you're a sprint coach who does a podcast with Dodd Saladino, who is, you know, he's a lot of things, but he's, you know, this jack shredded celebrity trader, former gym owner, all this sort of stuff. So just dive into that. Yeah, it, it, it's, I mean, it's definitely hasn't been by design a lot of the time is, is probably your career is gone. Like you'll kind of get exposed to stuff and you're, you'll gravitate towards different people and you go, Oh, that's pretty interesting what they're doing there. And you, you'd find ways to um, make your stuff relevant to other people. I think that's the interesting part. And certainly when I go to, like, if I go to an NFL team and I teach their staff, most of the staff are like general population dudes and, and women also, right? They're not, um, you know, high performers. There's a few strength coaches who played in the NFL or something like that. And they're, you know, obviously um, very competent unless they, you know, have like a whole bunch of injuries after their career. Um, but certainly you're teaching jet regular people how to do this so that they can teach other people. So that was the first part is, okay, I have to, you know, I have to take this athletic trainer or this physiotherapist from this team and take them through the same steps so that they can feel it. And at the same time, I can't injure them, right? I have to make sure I'm responsible with how I teach them. And then eventually you start teaching uh, physical therapists. Okay, let's go teach physical therapists. And when I was in New York City, one of the questions I ask is how many of you are taught running as part of your physical therapy education in school? Of course, no hands go up. So now okay, that's my responsibility now is I should be going out and teaching physical therapists about running so that they can bring people back to running effectively, right? The old uh, way of doing things is like, well, let's do a walk and a jog progression, um, but that takes forever and you don't really learn efficient mechanics that way by getting people to walk and jog. So, and then from there, you run into people like Don. So I was in uh, New York City working with an actor and we were looking for a gym to train where you're not going to have people walking up on you and bugging him and getting an autograph. And so uh, Don was in that business. He had a gym where he was training a lot of uh, different celebrities, a uh, great environment where, you know, they know each other, the celebrities know each other and everybody feels comfortable uh, in that environment. And I, 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 you know, had some contact with Don and people like Charlie Weingroff and other people in, in that circle. So it was a very easy, um, you know, connection. And so we went there and I started talking to Don. Oh, what are you doing? Okay. Well, you know, I'll teach your staff how to sprint, uh, and how to coach it. And we'll try it on a few of your clients. And there were different clients who came through, uh, very high profile people, everybody from, you know, celebrities to, stockbrokers and I'm teaching these people how to sprint now and they're very interested. So I'm like, Oh, this is really interesting. Like there's a market here. Uh, and then I would go around to other gyms in New York city, uh, through different connections, go to, you know, where Pat Davidson was working out, um, and go, go to some other place. I remember going, there's a fellow named Ryan Hopkins who had a gym in Soho as well. And so I was teaching his staff and, uh, it just organically happened. Um, and you find out that people are interested in this stuff. And if you teach it properly and everybody stays healthy uh, while you're doing it, it is actually a fun activity. I have a group in Vancouver that come out and we kind of created it during COVID because people couldn't work out in gyms. So, hey, let's go sprint. 
And a lot of them are ex-athletes like SCF, CFL players, um, you know, ex MMA fighters, uh, who are now like in their thirties and forties and they still want to do this stuff. Uh, and, and they have a lot of fun doing it. So we'll go out and time 40 yard dashes for like 40 year old guys. And, you know, if you did that with people who weren't trained, you know, it would be a huge hamstring injury, uh, jamboree. Right. But in, in this case, guys are running pretty close to what they ran when they were in their twenties because we've done it properly. So, they have a good time. They, they send videos to their buddies who are out of shape and say, look, I'm still running a good 40 yard dash. What are you doing? So I, I think there's some, some value for people and some enjoyment that they can draw from it. I mean, this is, I, I'm really intrigued in, in all this and we'll talk off air about exploring this a little bit more and about your resources. I definitely want you to share more about your resources. So let's go deeper on the industry side of stuff because, you know, there has to be something that is fulfilling about these relationships. I mean, meeting Don at his gym and all this sort of stuff, but I mean, you guys now do what I think is a weekly podcast. As I said, I was just a guest on it and you're talking to other people in the industry. And I know from podcasts, they're one of the best vehicles <laughs> combined with traveling to different events to develop these kind of relationships. And what has that experience been like for you immersing yourself within the fitness industry uh, you know, in terms of the value it's been to you professionally, but just, uh, you know, I, I suppose personally as well. I mean, it, it's great. It's just, uh, it's just, a, I hate to say it, but it's it's kind of just a good way to meet new people who have, you know, relatively similar interests, but they're coming from different, you know, areas, uh, different, different, you know, um, they might have different clientele. Somebody might just work exclusively with, um, you know, women or children or like Don celebrities in, um, some people may work with, Hey, recreational golfers or, and, and so you start, it makes you be more creative with the way that you present your materials and make it useful for people. I think it's, you know, just like I think you do with your business, Andrew, is you're always looking for opportunities to reach new people. And I think, uh, you know, meeting Don has challenged me and then we'll have, you know, we'll do podcasts and, you know, somebody will come on. I don't know who they are. So I have to do some research like you do and find out, okay, how can I come up with, uh, reasonable, uh, interesting questions for this person so that the conversation flows better. And I think it just makes you more versatile and adaptable to be exposed to all these different people and challenges your brain. And that that's what makes it exciting because after a while, if I just go work with 32 NFL teams, they're kind of the same questions. They're kind of, I don't have to think I can just say, this is what, you know, I did this with 30 other NFL teams. You're the last two we're not going to change anything. It's going to be the same thing, right? You know, the average play is about five or six seconds and the big guys travel this far and the receivers travel this far, you know? So uh, it, it's not as challenging. Obviously there's individual scenarios that can be challenging within team sports and pro sports, but uh, it's nice to try different things. And that's, that's, that seems to be where my career is going is I, I, you know, work with everything now from European soccer. I work with ice hockey, um, worked with the Toronto Maple Leafs and we're teaching them how to sprint, which is kind of like the first couple of steps in ice skating, but, but it's still different. You're teaching somebody who could be, uh, making 10 million a year in the NHL. And he's wondering why he has to sprint on the, on the, on the turf now. 
it's like, well, this, you know, and you have to explain to him, this is how it transfers this, you know, so it's a challenge and it's a new environment. And then when you see that player go out and sprint faster on the ice and score a goal, it's rewarding, right? But much like the same thing with the general population, when I teach a course to personal trainers, and then I see them throughout the course getting better from rep to rep and looking better and understanding how it should feel so that they can teach others, that's rewarding as well. So you're, you know, you want that exposure to different markets, to different people, but you also want to challenge yourself. And if you're just working with the same people all the time, it does get boring. Well, if the if the Toronto Maple Leafs turn around and win a Stanley Cup, then we probably <laughs> can credit you because <laughs> not an NHL fan or a Canadian who knows hockey. The poor Leafs have been uh, one of the you know most famous futile franchises <laughs> since what 1967, I think. Um, yeah, yeah, it's, it's been a, very, a while. They've got a very talented team, so we'll see. They always they seem to underperform in the playoffs. We'll see if that makes a difference, but that's cool. Uh, I, I guess you you said this earlier, but having interactions with different types of people probably enhances your communication skills, which probably puts you ahead with the the classic teams, athletes, coaches, community that you are primarily working with at least in the in the direct job yeah it's 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 a very narrow focus and if you're working for a pro team uh the one thing that they always say to me is like we don't have a lot of time for connecting with others and professional development right um because their schedules are pretty tight especially if you work for a baseball team right um and even for an nfl team it's not like you get a lot of days off. A friend of mine, Rob Panarello, just started working with the Carolina Panthers. And uh, he's a workaholic. And he's lucky if he can get half an hour here in a week to talk to his family or talk to me or, you know. So um, when you work in those environments, it's very limiting. So being able to work, you know, you know, in the private sector is is much easier for you to connect with other people and, and different gyms. And that right there is something huge because I can't, I'm trying to remember, oh God, Ron McKeefrey's CEO um, book about, he's a strength coach, well-known in, yep. in space. And anybody who comes from that strength and conditioning world working with team sports is exactly what you said. It's really demanding. There's long hours. It's not necessarily all that financial rewarding. People do it because they love it. And there's definitely a message of keep your head down. Don't stand out. Don't build a brand. Don't be that person. I know that people like Brett Bartholomew and Nick Winkleman have sort of pushed against that a bit. I mean, they were super successful with Exos, but then maybe that's the reason why is because they're working for this private organization versus yeah. employee of a team. So can you speak more to the value and the benefits of being able to be the, the private business person who goes in and works with these athletes and teams as opposed to being the strength coach within the organization. Yeah. I mean, I mean, one of the things is there's a lot of secrecy uh, in pro sports and this is what we do. And we don't really want to tell everybody else what we're doing um, because we want to have an edge or there's just a perception of, you know, secrecy and, and, and there's, you know, the, it can be a little neurotic around, you know, should I tell these people this or should I show what I'm doing? And the other part of it is, like you said, you want to keep your head down and stay off the radar. So if if you go out and you have a huge social media following and you're spending all this time taking videos of things while you're when you should be working, um, you know, especially if your team isn't winning, 
then, you know, maybe there's a target on your back. So uh, I think you have to, you know, as a professional within those types of organizations, you have to be very careful for, for good reason. So you don't want to attract too much attention. Um, and the only people who should be attracting attention really should be your, you know, your top players, right? The athletes. And, you know, that's what people want to see. So, and you even see that with, um, uh, like certain players, I won't mention any names, but if their family uh, starts trying to get attention as part of it, uh, people look really uh, poorly on that and say like, hey, stay in your lane, right? You know, you're just this soul and soul's brother or wife or whatever. you shouldn't be on Twitter, you know, doing I'll all say, this stuff. I'll say some classic examples just for context. I mean, this is more obscure for anyone but baseball fans, but when Chris Benson, a talented pitcher for the Pirates, his wife, Anna, started really acting out on social media that caused a lot of chaos and derailed his career. You have famous sports dads. Uh, what's his name? Uh, Ball. Uh, Lon- oh, yes. Lonzo Ball, right? And his kids. I can't imagine being a team owner wanting to have anything to do with his kids because of having to do with him. Is it uh, is Lavara the, the dad? I can't remember which. I think so. I think so. Yeah. Yeah. Very, very flamboyant and, or, you know. You get basketball players dating the Kardashians, and it doesn't seem like that's necessarily been, you know, great for those players' careers as that sort of happened too. Because yeah, it brings a lot of, it almost brings a media circus. I mean, Dennis Rodman is probably the the real classic, but Dennis was also the on court, you know, personality. It seemed to work, but whether he's dating Carmen Electra or going and hanging out with, is it Kim Jong Il back in the day or this other sort of shenanigans, that's a little bit of a different story. But yeah, and it goes deeper. If you get athletes who their off-court, off-field exploits draw attention in a negative way, whether it's Kyrie Irving right now or there's any Josh Donaldson in baseball, he went from being, you know, the hey, Toronto Blue Jays fan, you know, very flamboyant sort of character, but MVP caliber player. He's no longer an MVP caliber player and he keeps doing stupid things or saying stupid things. And all of a sudden, you know, there's a, there's a lot more negative attention, a little bit of a, a, a sort of a down a rabbit hole there, but there's a lot of, yeah. of this stuff. Yeah. Like a Russell Wilson at Denver Broncos, right? Yeah, totally. You know, like if he's winning and they're doing well, nobody cares, but they're not. So now they care. And it, it kind of goes to the flip side where I do admire the guys like Mike Trout, I think is a really great example. There's lots of NHL players who are great for this stuff too, but Mike Trout, shows up to work. He's charismatic in a very quiet way, but he doesn't really seek the limelight. And he, you know, he's a, he's a legendary superstar player and he's avoided some of the negativity of, you know, I would just watch a video and it talked about uh, Josh Hamilton uh, back, you know, and his, his problems with drugs. And, you know, recently there's some really bad stuff after his baseball careers ended. So I know there's obviously a parallel between the guys that keep their heads down and work hard and, and the ones that end up seeking attention off the field. Um, yeah, but it's side tangent, but something kind of interesting for those who are true. Yeah, to... but but certainly in the private sector, um, you need to attract attention to some degree, right? So you want to get eyes on you. And then like even with Don, we were talking about this and he said some of his best posts are the ones where it doesn't really have to do with exercise. It might be something funny or something a little silly, uh, but you're trying to get eyes on you so that you can sneak in that post about how to do proper technique or how to do proper nutrition. And right. So you have to kind of dress things up a bit, get your audience to you 
And then, okay, here's the good information. But if you just stick with like the good information, yeah, you'll do okay. But it, it's something we all have to um, consider if we're in the private sector. Don does something really clever. I mean, first of all, he's he's authentic and charismatic and, and just inherently likable. And he's got relationships not only deeply within what we call the evidence-based community. And there's, there's niches within evidence-based that become so dogmatic and pedantic about everything that they don't actually interact with the general population in any sort of useful way. But then we get the, the bodybuilding world and obviously sometimes the extremely evidence-based community gets antagonistic with that bodybuilding world. But I think there are individuals like Don, like Dr. Mike Isertel, deeply evidence-based, but yet you know, he lives in that space too. Lane Norton does this stuff. And bridging that gap where, I mean, Don is, is very high profile with Men's Health and Muscle and Fitness Magazine. But Don interacts with people who I, I think maybe I, the old me might have been a bit more critical of because, you know, maybe what they're saying isn't really the crazy well backed up by research. But I'm starting to see more and more the value of, and I'm not, not talking about charlatans, like outright bullshit. Like I'll, I'll say the liver king right now because there's this hubbub on the internet. Apparently some email got leaked about his steroid cycle where the guy has denied steroids. Come on, like only stupid people don't think that guy's on steroids. Come on. <laughs> Don has done a really good job. Like you look at his, his pal, everything he does with Frank Seppe, right? And yeah, Frank, Frank's Frank, hilarious. I love Frank. Frank's amazing. And I, I just saw them posting something up about like all these like covers of Harlequin romance novels that Frank had posed for. And I am assuming those are real uh, but Frank doesn't give a shit. And, you know, maybe those dogmatic evidence-based bros would look at this stuff and, and look down on it. But guess what? These guys are in front of a lot of eyes. They're getting a lot of people moving and active. Their training information is amazing. It's absolutely yep. solid. Their nutritional information is amazing. And I just don't like the, the really extreme dogmatic, combative, like extreme evidence-based crew. And I'm, I'm deeply yep. evidence-based. But there comes a point past which you go that I just don't think it's actually serving anything. I think it's just fighting many battles off in a corner of the industry and creating fear and barriers to confusion and barriers to entry for everyday people who just want to feel better. Yeah, there's something to be said for um, good anecdotal information, right? Like this is what I did. This is the experience I had and this is the result I had. Um, and I think, you know, there's, I, I put out a lot of infographics about, uh, the things I do and the processes I use. And every time I'll put something out and somebody says, Oh, do you have this study that shows that, uh, you know, supports this? I'm like, no, I just have 30 plus years of experience that support it. I'm sorry. Nobody has come up with a study for that yet, but that's, that's really, there's a, a segment of the population that, that has been taught to just, oh, look at a study. Oh, that's what I'll do. But you and I both know that the real world doesn't operate that way. Um, so hearing about people's experiences uh, and diving into the nuances is really important. And even like I, at, when I was at Don's place a couple of weeks ago, we, I was talking with Frank and we were talking about business and running gyms and all that. Everybody should be, I wish we could have recorded it because Frank is uh, extremely intelligent about how to do that stuff. And so, you know, listening to him tell stories about, you know, him trying to advise people and then brushing them off and then losing $10 million in the process was, was fascinating. So you want to, you want to talk to people who, 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 you know, walk the walk, 
and, and, and had a fall and, and, and recovered from it. And then that's how you learn. It's the trial and error stories. It's not the, I did a scientific study and this is how I conduct my life. And we know that there's a hierarchy of evidence, right? I mean, you get rich meta-analyses and high quality studies. And then we know that there's like bullshit studies out there too with predatory journals. There, there's that. And there's a whole lot of stuff there, but there, there is this tribe of people that dismiss anything that can't be verifiably demonstrated in a, in a high quality study. And yes, that's not how life works. And I'm also not the person who turns around and invalidates what's going on in the research world. I think these things have to converge. And I, I think you have to meet experience and practice and the real experience with humans, which is messy with what we can also verify and replicate with research. If we have, if we have really high quality research that is, is really robust, has been replicated and it's refuting or really showcasing that there's a ton of evidence against some sort of anecdotal narrative that sounds a little bit kooky. Okay, cool. Well, we know that. So again, I don't think a lot of trainers kind of know where the line is and it can yep. get confusing. Um, I still, I've said this numerous times, I think the best resource is still to find people who are qualified experts in various fields. That's why I like bringing people like you on here and, and deferring to them, people who interpret research really well, but who are also experienced practitioners with real humans too. And I think that's an extremely valuable thing. And I, and I, I like people like, uh, again, the Renaissance Periodization team, Mike Isertel and the, and the, his crew, Dr. Lane Norton, I think Dr. Eric Helms is phenomenal in this space. And, and, and you know, I'm, I keep expanding out to people like Dr. Gabrielle Lyon, who I met in New York, and I know is really close with Don. So I'm, I'm looking at different people within the industry to go, all right, cool. These people merge evidence-based practice with actual practice on humans. Yeah, I yeah, I agree. I, I do the same. You cast a wide net and pull everything in and you sort it out in your brain. And um, but you can't take things at face value all the time. I mean, there's a huge sort of Joe Rogan effect out there where when you watch his stuff, like he'll have somebody interesting on. But if you're an intelligent person, you can understand when there's biases in the conversation and when, you know, he's kind of leaning towards the stuff that he likes and and you go, okay, well, I won't listen to that part. But if he has another interesting guest on, I'll watch, you know, you just have to sift through and filter yourself. You can't just take everything at face value. And I think everybody's doing that now, or a lot of people are doing that where they just listen to, you know, whether it's politics or religion or exercise, they'll just listen to the same thing that they want to keep hearing rather than kind of going, well, let's listen to everything and then draw conclusions from that. So it's it's tribalism and we see the world in almost every aspect nutrition is highly tribalistic i mean i would say it's equally tribalistic to yes. at this point yes um training methodologies we're seeing it more and more there's this rise in this biomechanics movement and there's some goofy things that go on there there's a lot of smart people then there i think there's some people who are grifting i will just say uh sure and we see it uh, there's an interesting uh you know thing trend in the in the physical therapy world there's a lot more you know antagonism between different methodologies and different ideas and, and policing of what other people are saying. So I, I try to, like you said, expose myself to a robust array of individuals, sift through the message. And I think the extremely evidence-based people, oftentimes there's a lot of really good information in there too. So I try to sift through the information. I just try to stay away from the, the tribal behavior, the antagonism between other people. And, uh, and I try to just support and showcase you know, people whose information 
I trust, whose integrity I trust in the industry. And, you know, people I put on this podcast have to kind of check those boxes. And one of the big things with you, especially because you're, I, I've known who you were for a while. You're a little newer to me in terms of knowing you well compared to a lot of my guests, but the people who you rub shoulders with on a regular basis are people that I hold in the highest regard and esteem, which vouches for you on a deeper level as I continue to explore more of your resources. And that's one of the things I'm interested in doing is exploring more of your resources. So how can our listeners find more of your work uh, online and, and where they find you on social media? Uh, probably most of my energy right now, and I don't know whether it's a good thing, but is is directed at putting stuff on Instagram. And it's Derek M. Hansen, M for Matthew, H-A-N-S-E-N. And um, then I have one for uh, running mechanics on Instagram as well, which is a little more towards the courses. But I'll try to use that as a way to kind of get information out and kind of see how people react to it. I'm not as active on Twitter as I used to be. It's it's I, I just don't find it as 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 useful for reaching uh, the kind of audience that I'm looking for. And I have no idea how to use TikTok. I just look at it and go, "What the heck is going on there?" I I you know. So I don't know. Uh, I may you know hire my teenage daughter to help me with that. Um, but the websites I have are sprintcoach.com and runningmechanics.com. So, you know, they're relatively static websites, but we'll have information there on, on when new courses are coming. And, and if you want to touch base with me for consultations and all that, but, you know, I, I'm, I'm, yeah, I'd like to think at the age of 53, I'm pretty advanced with some of the stuff, but I still have a lot to learn on the technology side and the social media side and, and, and the marketing side, of course. Right. So uh, I'm, I'm trying to learn every day. I'm learning all the time too. And I, and I love doing the dives into this stuff. Uh, do you have any uh, courses, seminars you're teaching in person coming up in the coming months? Um, I usually don't do a lot of traveling in the winter because it just stresses me out with uh, the weather and all that. And uh, I'm from Vancouver. So a lot of the time, if I fly anywhere, you have to fly through Chicago or Minnesota and, and that's kind of scary. Um, I will be probably doing some stuff in the spring. Like I'm looking at some dates in Chicago mm -hmm. and, um, one of the, one of my friends runs a facility there called TC boost, Tommy Christian, um, and doing something with Northwestern university. And then, um, you know, always looking at other opportunities, go back to New York city, uh, go back, go to like Boston, uh, maybe down the West coast to like Portland, Oregon, or um, hopefully down to Southern California. But I'm I'm looking at dates right now and trying to fill up my spring and summer calendar. And just now, you know, I still feel like, okay, we finally made it to that point where we're kind of back to normal. And my last trip to New York City kind of confirmed that. Um, but you never know, right? You just, I'm, I'm still a little guarded with committing to too much uh, too quickly. Uh, in person, like last year, I went to Edmonton to work with just track the track and field community, and I caught COVID in Edmonton uh, last April. So <laughs> that was that was fun. Uh, but but yeah, I'm 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 focusing on a few new products for my online courses, but at the same time, and doing collaborations. Like I think Don and I are gonna. When I was in New York City, we did a running program uh, on the treadmills in his, in his barn there. And I had my daughter there and Don and my daughter were doing sort of like a tag team runoff. And we're going to turn that into a bit of a product because it was kind of fun, but Good. yeah, I'm, 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 you know, going to use the holidays to kind of work on what 2023 is going to look like. <laughs> well, 
by the time I release this, I will be just back from speaking at uh, the Fitness Business Mastermind. Uh, a couple of friends of mine run it. And Lane Norton and Jordan Syed and Bedros Koulian are all part of the lineup. That one's in Scottsdale. And I'll be on my way in a few days to the NSCA Rocky Mountain Regional back down in the Phoenix area. And then the third weekend in a row, I'll be flying to uh, hang out with the Renaissance Periodization team at their summit. And then the next day, I'll be at the Olympia Expo. So I'll be getting wow. up old Edmonton. And for anyone listening, you might think, all right, Edmonton and Vancouver are like next door provinces, but the climate could not be more different. Uh, a lot of Canadians do like to try to retire or eventually move out to uh, British Columbia, the Kelowna or Vancouver areas because the climate is much milder than, I mean, I'm, I'm in the, probably the, the largest northernmost city in North America. Yeah. It's, it gets pretty cold there. So yeah, yeah I, know, I know even when I was there back in April, I'm like, it looks like winter has just ended, right? Sort of, but it was still got a little cold there. So, yeah. Well, great. Um, Derek, I really appreciate you coming on. Everybody listening. I, I hope a lot of you guys are like me and you're like, oh, this is actually really cool and fascinating. It's something that I, you guys haven't necessarily gotten a ton of exposure to. So go follow Derek on Instagram. That's the big one, okay? And then you now kind of know he's there. Dive in his resources. Keep an eye on this sort of stuff. And uh, obviously, if they have questions, they could probably reach out to you there. Thank you for listening. If you're someone who has found my podcast through Derek's media, well, go back to Don Saladino's episode recently. You're probably familiar with Don. Go listen to that. And if you want to stick around, I've had the who's who of the industry across five years. And technically, this is episode 106 of the new format. There's 150 old episodes. Dr. John Berardi was one of the guests just before we switched over because I used to have a co-host who's a good friend. Derek, thank you again. And thank you to everybody listening. We'll. Uh, I'll have a great guest for you guys next week.